Hi there, David here. Welcome back to Blowout. Got a slightly different interview here for you. We're hearing again from our friend Eric Vatek, who you might remember from our Harley Davidson versus Japan episode about uh, anti-Japanese teas. Eric is the photographer for Capital as well as you know a bunch of other brands over his career as a fashion photographer, uh, who has been to find himself in a lot of interesting places, to put it mildly. Talked about being in Indonesia during the coup, as well as uh, documenting a lot of places that you wouldn't otherwise want to find yourself in. A lot of people would you know, turn around and run away. Uh, one of those, uh, which we're here on the 10-year anniversary of the Fukushima disaster in eastern Japan, which happened on uh, March 11th in 2011, that uh, Eric happened to be in Japan a couple weeks after that, and he visited the region and took a lot of photos and helped out with donations and ended up revisiting the area uh, about five or six times and has a uh, extensive amount of photos that he took in the area and uh, you know spent a, a decent amount of time there uh, amongst the you know survivors and a, a group of people that were um, there to deliver supplies and help out oh we're gonna talk to Eric about his experiences there and uh, we've got a lot of his photos posted up on uh, the website and they're in the show notes so yep hope you enjoy Eric, thanks for coming back on. Uh, another uh, slightly downer of a su- not slightly downer <laughs> of a subject, very downer of a subject, more of a downer of a subject than the last time you were on talking about uh, anti-Japanese Harley tees. But uh, talking again about Japan. Yeah, no, thanks for having me back. It, we talked a bit in our last uh, episode about um, what are the the adventures that you've been on around the world and how you sort of intentionally find yourself in places of conflict or you know intense situations like when you were in uh indonesia during the the coup or uh you know hiding in the back of a cigarette truck with a baseball bat and it's it seems like a a running theme here or uh and now um that you were in uh the area of japan affected by the tsunami and the subsequent you know, the earthquake, the subsequent tsunami, and then the subsequent uh, nuclear disaster. Yeah. So yeah, I was just wondering if you could speak to a little bit about that. Um, maybe the through line there first about what it is you're looking for in these places and what drives you to to want to put yourself in these situations that most people would want to run, you know, a thousand miles in the other direction from. Yeah. Well. Well. So you know. So primarily, you know, I work as a fashion photographer and and. and with some Japanese clients, you know, notably Capital. And um, so on March 11th, 2011, yeah, there was the uh, earthquake and tsunami. And obviously I, you know, take very seriously being a fashion photographer. I always, it was drawn to more like documentary style photography. So when I have the chance to do something like that, of course, um, you know, I want to do that. I, I was on the New York City subway and I looked at my phone and saw that, you know, ma- you know, major earthquake in Japan. And, um, and I, I think at the, at that time they didn't even realize there was a tsunami yet or, or, you know, but at first it was just like earthquake. And then of course, you know, 
the tsunami rolls in. As it has it happened, I already had a meeting plan to uh, to go to go meet with Capital, and of course, I was like, "Oh, you know, can I still go? Should I? Should I even still go?" But then you you know then you hear about oh now there's a nuclear meltdown, <laughs> so you could probably get bumped up to first class pretty easily on that flight. <laughs> well, the flight. So 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 I mean to cut to the chase, I guess. So I mean. You know, I went home and I, I, I found a way to, to watch. I didn't even try to watch the American news. I, I found a way to watch NHK um, mm-hmm. on the internet. The, 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 the Japanese news station. The Japanese news channel. So I was seeing like, I wasn't even seeing what, you know, other people, I was seeing what they were, they were showing in Japan, which was, you know, pretty intense. And, um, you know, maybe I had one conversation with Kiro from Capital about, should I still go? And he's like you know yeah you can come if you want to i'm like yeah i want to go and so i mean that was the most empty flight to japan i think i've ever been on uh it was just uh it was weird it was like i it was me and somehow this like american high school still decided to have their school trip to tokyo despite the fact that there was this possible like nuclear disaster um I don't know how they decided to do that. Um, but so it was me and like 12, you know. High school students there to go to Tokyo Tower and. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we were on the like, we ended up on the bus, like the bus from the airport into Tokyo together. And it was kind of, it was, it was a weird, it was like a really, like kind of surreal. Um, cause you really, cause so what happened is all of the Amer, all of the, like all the foreign, businessmen that lived in Tokyo were all basically moved to Osaka because that's like much farther away. So Tokyo was really like, like a ghost town. Um, and there were no, of course there were like almost no tourists, um, you know, and like foreign media initially was covering the disasters. And as soon as they started talking about, you know, nuclear meltdown, they all either left or they like started reporting from helicopters, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. 10,000 feet in the air. Um, so there was very little, definitely very little foreign media coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, to course, understand what it was like on the ground uh, yeah, before so, actually arriving. I, I mean, there's this newscaster that I actually kind of, you know, I respect. Her name's Ann Curry, and she's, I think she's half Japanese. And she was there, initially she was there and started reporting. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden she's in a helicopter, like, you know, cause you know, that was that, you know, they were, they were obviously they were, you know, nobody wants to get irradiated. Um, mm-hmm. but so yeah, there was, so, so most of the coverage was obviously Japanese and, uh, but it was all still, it was all real mysterious, you know, cause nobody was really sure mm-hmm. what, what was going on. It's like a little bit of background here. Like, what exactly did happen on the 11th in terms of the facts to uh, that we know of now that maybe were difficult to piece together then at the time? Yeah. So, so there was a a, a nine nine point zero or nine point one. I guess that's the Richter scale earthquake mm-hmm. off the coast of Japan, which yeah. I guess was the largest, the 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 most severe earthquake that Japan's. I don't know if it's the, the most severe they've ever had, but the most severe they've ever had in modern times, or you know, at least like last hundred years. Yeah, the scale um, only goes to ten. Yeah, so 
so and there was something like like to get really like scientific about it there's some earthquakes move side to side and some earthquakes move up and down and whichever Mm -hmm. earthquake this was it was the worst it was the worst one you know one of them one of them just shakes you maybe the up and down one's not so bad but the one that goes side to side like because it's really shaking you Mm -hmm. it could be the opposite but whichever or whichever version it was, it was the worst. And so it triggered, because it was out on the ocean off the coast, it triggered this tsunami. And the wave, the wave reached a height of a, 133 feet at, at its highest point. So imagine a, a wave 133 feet tall crashing down on your, you know, your city. Um, so when all was said and done, about 20,000 people were killed. Um, One million buildings were either, you know, damaged or destroyed. Um, the, the, the main island of Japan where, you know, Tokyo is situated, uh, Honshu, actually moved 2.4 meters to the east. Like the whole, the, the land mass itself actually shifted. And it was so severe, it actually it actually changed the axis of the earth's rotation. Like this, this was, you know, this wasn't just like an earthquake. It was like a kind of like worst case scenario earthquake. Yeah. It's like in the West, we, I think have a different perception of earthquakes since when they happen here, like, yeah, there, there are big ones that happen out on the West coast here. But like when I lived in LA, it was generally like, Oh, like you're in the bathroom at like you know, two in the morning and like the walls shake a little bit and you go like, oh, okay, that's an earthquake. That's just a part of living in California. But this is on a completely different level that, you know, yeah. you mentioned that 130 foot uh, tsunami that, you know, literally moves, that literally moved the world. You know, there was a horrible one in Indonesia and, and Southeast Asia that actually, I think it killed almost 200,000 people. Um, but so it does... It, it's not that this was the, in terms of death, it's not like this was the greatest one ever, but um, mm-hmm. I think what was unique about it, because Japan is so densely populated, it it was really like, it wasn't like countryside being affected. It was like these, these like densely populated urban uh, environments being destroyed and, and overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um and so the so the and the other the other crazy thing about it is it it's not just like yeah there was an earthquake here and a couple buildings fell down it was so the it was 217 square miles of uh of land mass which is like you know the greater chicago area so it's not just like oh here's some destruction it's like we would you know you would drive and drive and drive and an hour later you're still driving in destroyed you know Mm. fucked up landscape you mentioned the twenty thousand people that uh, lost their lives during this was that primarily from the tsunami and the earthquake yeah i think uh, most a lot of it was from drowning yeah from from the tsunami um you know that you know so definitely some of it from uh the earthquake and and but a lot of it was just from drowning yeah and then there's the third aspect that you touched on earlier that i think uh Sort of dominated a lot of the coverage over here at the time was that the the Fukushima nuclear reactor that was on the east coast of Japan that was affected by the tsunami 
uh, had three meltdowns, I believe, uh, as yeah. a cause of like all that water getting into the nuclear reactors. Yeah, and I think it, and it actually like I think it uh, the earthquake uh, damaged the the uh, the reactor itself, like cracked it. So uh, I mean, that's like all that's obviously because of the radiation. It was hard to really go to that area, um, or or just it would have been suicide. Um, but we were, you know, we were, there were times we were not that far from there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like really tragic stories about like, like some of the workers just like going in anyways to try to like turn some valves or, you know, or, or, mm -hmm. or mitigate the, the, the damage. And um, I mean, they, they knew they were just, they were going to be exposed to so much radiation that they, you know, where it was just a death sentence, but they went in anyways and, and, you know, tried to, you know, you know, save the, the population. Yeah. Uh, just the, you know, worst earthquake in modern history in Japan, like combined with the worst tsunami, uh, in the modern history of Japan. And then the like second worst nuclear meltdown ever in the world just behind chernobyl from what uh, i read about it like all yeah. happening in the course of about 24 hours yeah um, i mean even in addition to that you know i mean because the, the earthquake caused there were you know the earthquake created like fires um you know gas stations catching on fire and and, and so there was fire before the tsunami even hit there were all these fires and then and then after that there was a blizzard so the people literally got snowed on and, 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 and we're freezing. So it was just like, uh, like so many, uh, so many disasters on top of each other. So what was it like, I guess, arriving in Japan at that time? Like you, the, this all happened on March 11th. Do you uh, remember the exact date that you got there? Yeah. So I, I had a flight, like an, an existing flight already bought. And I, I think I arrived March, um, you know, something like March 28th, maybe. So maybe like th two or three weeks later, um, and I had to do, you know, I had to do my, my business that I was, you know, which was why I was there. And, um, like I said, Tokyo was like, like a noticeably sort of a ghost town. And, um, uh, but I started, you know, I started asking around, like, um, I mean, I was definitely curious about going, um, I had, because, so I had, because I have. I was flying there anyway, so I, instead of bringing my own stupid luggage, I I, I filled my 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 luggage with uh, bottles of water. I literally brought several cases of bottled water, um, diapers, tampons, um, energy bars, like just stuff that I knew I could donate, you know, for the local the local people. And you know, I was conscious of like, you know, I didn't want to be a burden to like like any relief effort that was going on. So I wanted to try to contribute, you know, since I have, since I was able to bring this luggage, you know, certain, you know, certain amount of luggage for free, I figured I might as well do that. And, uh, so I actually gave that, some of that I gave to the, the hotel that I stayed was, was accepting donations. I mean, everybody was basically accepting donations. So it wasn't that hard to, you know, to, mm -hmm. you know, find a spot for it to go, find a place for it to go. But so I started, I started asking around, um, and I have a friend, uh, Jack that I had met in the States and, um, Jack actually is from Sendai 
and S- Sendai was was an area that was actually hit pretty hard by the earthquake, and um, and Jack was you know back in the '90s was a, a also a vintage clothing dealer, and uh, he was also in the uh, New York City Hell's Angels, and um, so I, I got a whole, I, I got reconnected with Jack, and you know asked Jack if he if he you know needed help or he, he knew any way I could you know if I so you know I I had two you know I had as a photographer I wanted to go and take photos, but of course as a, you know as a human being I wanted to you know if I could help I wanted to help so, um, and I was you know I was very conscious of like I said, not, not just showing up and being like, click, click, click. I'm not, you know, hmm. I, I didn't want to be a, I didn't want to contribute to any problem, you know, the problem, you know, hmm. by but just taking up resources that would taking up to- resources, taking up, you know, um, taking up space that, that would really be detrimental more than positive. So, but Jack, so Jack through his motors, kind of the motorcycle world. And he, he, he knew of this or this group that was called support the underground that was driving uh donations and supplies into this you know tsunami area you know he asked them if you know would, would you mind if you know my friend this american photographer came along and so they were you know they they were they were into it because they they wanted somebody to help document what they were doing and and what the survivors were experiencing um and you know, also I, I, I did manage to bring some of my donations, you know, there. And then also, I guess it was, you know, they, they needed manpower to help, to help move all this stuff. Um, so, so Jack hooked me up with another guy, Ken, who Ken ended up becoming a pretty good friend of mine. He was also in the Hells Angels in the United States. And, uh, so it was, it was this motor. So basically I'm kind of, I guess I kind of skipped ahead. So basically you can imagine it was kind of chaos on the ground right when it happened and the Japanese government, you know, I'm sure they were doing the best they could, but you know, it's a bureaucracy and things move slow. So the, this, these, these kind of these combined effort of these motorcycle clubs, you know, they didn't have to deal with bureaucracy and they didn't have to follow rules so much. So, they just started accepting donations and they could just they could just almost drive there faster than some of the official relief um and you know the american military was there and i ended up sort of becoming friendly with one of the helicopter pilots um you know they were there helping but you know they have to follow rules and they have to follow you know guidelines plus once there was the threat of you know radiation exposure i think that's that really slowed things down so this this sort of group of motorcycle clubs could sort of just ignore their own safety and just they just started driving there yeah i saw that there were 154,000 people that had to be evacuated from yeah. that uh, area that was affected um so by the time you got there, I imagine most of those people had been evacuated, and then it was going back and sort of seeing what was well. Left you couldn't could even be done a lot recover. of the people couldn't even be evacuated because you would have. So the roads were destroyed by the earthquake. So they were, you know, they were as quickly as they could. They were repairing the roads, but there were survivors that were living kind of 
and mass in like schools, like any, you know, not, it's not like every building was destroyed. So if a building was maybe like on a hill, um, it was still standing. So, so there were survivors that were just essentially trapped in that area, um, for, for quite a while. So we, we went to some of these, uh, these air, these, these, these facilities where they had like water filtration system and, um, portable sinks set up. And so they, they needed food. They needed all that essential stuff to survive. When you were arriving there for the first time, is it like a, was there a, a clear line of where the destruction sort of started and where normalcy ended when you were on your way in? Yeah. You know, so you, could you see the, like where the water started to like at last hit and then receded? Yeah. So we were driving and you could see where the roads had been repaired and um so the, the the tsunami went as far as six miles inland so sendai for example was uh was is six miles from the ocean and it was still affected by the tsunami so so you know you you it was a pretty obvious you you you'd hit that point and then you just start seeing the destruction and um the aftermath so you're talking um you know cars completely you know destroyed um but you'd see these like steel i-beams that were just bent like like you know pretzels and 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 uh railroad tracks the the steel beams of railroad tracks just bent into knots like like and that's just the that's just purely from the pressure of the water like it, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine the force um required to do that just just from water yeah Uh, looking at some of your photos here from uh the destruction it's surreal that you just see you know cars totally exploded yeah you know buildings that have uh all of their lower levels just shredded um it's you know like looking at a post-apocalyptic um nightmare type thing but then there's just all this like water everywhere and there's surreal things like boats in the middle of the street and like not small fishing boats but just like large tanker ships uh, that had been moved ashore just the the volume of water um uh it's really difficult to comprehend yeah i mean there's a photo of like there's a there's a car on top of like a four-story building or you know it's like it's stuff that your mind, your, your, your mind sort of the way your, uh, the way a brain works, it sort of expects things to be a certain way. And when your brain experiences stuff that is not the way it's supposed to be, it, it almost like shuts down, you know, momentarily or for a while, that's, which is, I guess what, you know, being in shock is, um, but it was kind of like that. Like you just, you know, I just, I remember looking at stuff and just, almost being stunned into silence or immobile. Um, Mm. But at the same time, you know, trying to take photos and trying to help, you know, trying to help out with, you know, what needed to be done, like moving these donations. And, you know, and I have to say, I have to, I have to say on the first trip, obviously I, you know, I was just, it was just, you know, there was just so much to photograph and I, and I, you know, I was trying to document, all these guys and, and, and women, you know, 
moving boxes of stuff. And um, I, I probably, I guess I didn't, I didn't help out as much as I should have. So the second time I went, one of, you know, one of the motorcycle bosses, um, he, he told Jack like, Hey, look, your buddy, Eric needs to, needs to carry a few more boxes. So, um, on my second trip, I worked a lot harder, uh, like helping to, you know, work as opposed to taking photos. But, uh, so I felt really bad about that, but I, I was glad they said something, you know, cause I could, you know, man yeah. up man up and carry a few more boxes uh, when you arrived like uh I, i'm i'm trying to picture like you driving in there and just like arriving at the area where the destruction had happened um were there checkpoints like to, to access those areas were there other people yeah, that were around, yeah. or did you just basically just drive and then there's the no, ocean and it's it's not like just anybody could drive in there you had to have yeah. you had to have documents official documents to get through these checkpoints and uh the, the 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 guys somehow you know acquired these official documents that they needed to to get through um if you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. um so yeah it was so the officials would like look at these documents they'd look at us and then look at the documents and be like uh what are you doing <laughs> you know mm -hmm. um but then, you know, we had all these, you know, we had, you know, I think they had at one point they had 18 trucks of, uh, supplies. So, you know, the, the, the officials would let them through. Um, and I, and this is crazy. At one point, I remember we were at one of the relief centers and the Japanese army actually asked the motorcycle guys for food because like the army the, the guys in the, you know, Japan self-defense force were short on supplies. So like, it was kind of crazy, like hard to imagine, but, um, you know, so these, these, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the motorcycle clubs were actually, they weren't just even giving food and supplies to the survivors. They were helping, they were helping feed and supply like, you know, the, the police and the army with, uh, what they needed. And who were the people that you were encountering there? Was it other people that had come to help or were there uh, survivors there um, that were directly receiving the contributions? It was, it was mostly survivors, but so what would happen? So there were people whose homes were destroyed, but then there were also, there were people whose homes weren't destroyed, but their homes were like these little islands in the destruction. So they could, you know, in theory they could stay at their house, but they had no electricity and no food and no water. So it was a combination of like, you know, giving, relief to like people who were essentially refugees and then also just feeding local people that maybe could still stay in their house, but they still had no access to, you know, food or water. Um, and then there were these shelters that were, you know, took in people. Um, so they needed, you know, they needed, uh, everything, you know, anything. Um, and, um, but you know there were there were people you know weirdly there were you know but the people the people you know they were super appreciative that to receive this aid and um uh, you know but imagine like these biker these like hardcore motorcycle guys walking up 
and at first, you know, people might be like, well, who are the, you know, who are these people? But then they've got 18 trucks of, of, you know, food and water. So the local people, I think were, you know, super appreciative and, um, you know, kind of weirdly, there were there was a few people that actually recognized me from, uh, you know, having been in, you know, a Japanese magazine, and they were they were like, it was it was weird to have people, oh, you're Eric, and you know, like want to have their photo taken with me and like want an autograph or something, and I'm like, you just survived, you just survived a tsunami, like, I mean. I felt okay. it was it was really awkward, but you know, uh, it was. I imagine exclusively all other Japanese people there. Yeah, I, I, I only saw one other foreign person. The you know the whole time I was you know there, um, and they were just they were driving around in like a minivan somehow, just shooting video out the door. They didn't even like you know they weren't even like touching the ground. Um, so you have to imagine this, the scene. So it's like, everything's destroyed. There's, you know, all these dead people, dead animals, the, the gas stations, like the fuel tanks, like spewed out all the fuel. Imagine all the chemicals, all the, all the chemicals from cars, from boats, um, dead fish. I mean, the, the smell, the smell was like pretty overwhelming. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, at first I was told to wear a mask, like, you know, like the masks that we all wear now. But as soon as I saw that the survivors didn't have masks, I stopped. I didn't, I refused to wear one because I was like, well, these, you know, six year old kids don't have masks. I'm not going to wear a mask. Um, so I don't know what, you know, I don't know what I exposed myself to. Um, yeah. Looking at one of your photos that, um, see one of the guys has like a sievert counter um, for radiation. Yeah. He was one of the reporters from a Japanese newspaper, um, uh, Kyoto, Kyoto news. Um, so he, he was issued like an official radiation counter. So that, I think, I think that's measuring your, your, it's not the amount of radiation at any one time. It's like a cumulative measure. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So that was basically like, he was only, he was only allowed to be in the area until it, reached a certain point and if it went over a certain measurement that he had to leave oh what was the 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 timing situation like you, you mentioned to me earlier that you'd been here uh, you came back uh, four or five times um was it like just driving in unloading all the stuff and getting out of there or uh, did you spend time did you spend the night there yeah we spent the night um so like the first time we the first time we stayed it was actually even hard. It was hard to even find a place to stay. So like, cause obviously any building that was still standing was sort of valuable to, you know, whoever was already there. So we would, the first, I think the first time we stayed in, it was some sort of like office, some, some kind of office building. Um, but like no heat. So, you know, it was, I mean, it was freezing. It was, it was really, really, you know, it was this blizzard. So, you know, it was just, all these, all these guys almost like huddled together for like, you know, body heat. Um, and, and even like the second time was still freezing, you know, like I went back three weeks later and it was still freezing and we stayed, 
I, I thought it was a tombstone factory actually. Um, cause it had this giant wheel that I think was for cutting granite, but I've, somebody said it's not a tombstone factory, but I, I'm pretty sure it was a tombstone, uh, maker, which I thought was kind of, you know, ironic. You know, I don't know if ironic's the right word, but, um, yeah, we would just, so we were like literally sleeping on like concrete floors in anywhere that was dry. By the third and fourth trip, it was more like I would go and stay with Jack and Sendai. We could we could just we could drive in for the day and then drive back to his place. Six months later, it was still complete. You know, just we'd find areas that were untouched, like nobody had, nobody had salvaged anything. Every you know, um, and that that was like the one time that Jack got kind of emotional was when we found this little village that was you know, six months later and, and nobody had cl- even tried to clean it up. And it was, you know, at first I didn't understand why he was upset, but then I kind of figured it out later that it be, it was the reason this village was untouched was because everybody was, you know, dead. Um, like the entire village had been wiped out. Um, and, and Jack kind of realized that before I did. Um, so it was, it was kind of, you know, it's it's pretty intense seeing somebody's house and all their stuff, you know, kind of destroyed, but still kind of there. Yeah. So, I mean, that, but then that was six months later. I mean, that, you know, it, it's such a huge area. It's not like, it's not like it was just, it's hard to really explain how huge of an area it was. Yeah. And if you're talking about six months later, that it still looks relatively untouched because yeah it was like it, yeah it was it's, seeing the the amount of cleanup is, I, I, just, I just keep coming back to this is mind-boggling that you have you know these uh ships that must weigh thousands of tons like in the middle of a city street what was involved in the the cleanup there like what was the um the greater plan of how to use this space because there was still a lot of um concern about rehabilitating the place and like bringing people back to their homes with the continued radiation exposure. Uh, I'm just wondering what the, the plan was uh, at a higher level of the Japanese government of like, you can't just leave it like this. You can't leave all these people like rotting in their homes, but also you can't really rebuild at the same time. Yeah. So, so when I went back and so I went back in 2013 in the summer, I think, and and, um, by then there was this massive, effort to clean it up so you would see these you know we'd be driving and just see these weird literally mountains of debris that had been like gathered so and organized would be like a a mountain of wood and a mountain of futons and a mountain of tires and a mountain of uh plastic or what you know what have you and um they were super organized about it uh, but it was it was just a monumental effort to clean all this up and then it you know where i don't even you know where did they send it or what did so so fukushima i think is still i th- i think still uninhabitable um because of the radiation um but you know the other areas that you know as they cleaned these areas and and many of the areas are just they're so destroyed that the people just never moved back like Mm-hmm. Even if they are building new houses, um, I, I and even I think psychologically, you know, maybe it's hard to move back to that. You know, 
is like thinking these aren't areas, you know, like uh, in the West or at least in the United States, you imagine some suburb where people have lived there for like 10 or 15 years. But you know, this is people have been in had been in these villages and these little towns for generations, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. So there was a story, there's a, supposedly there were these rocks that had been placed. I don't know how many, I don't know how old they were. They were like, you know, hundreds of years old, but these rocks basically said, don't live between this rock and the ocean. And it was, it was a warning to like future generations about tsunamis. But I think being, you know, being that we're modern people, we ignore, you know, these kind of like ancient uh, wisdoms, you know. Really? Uh, that, that's haunting. Yeah. So I, I guess, uh, you know, they, they the, 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 their ancestors had tried to, you know, warn them, warn them I guess. But, uh, you know, as we expand and, and we, you know, we, we do, you know, humans do crazy things like build houses on cliffs and, you know, mm-hmm. in burn uh, zones and forests, and yeah, uh, and, you know, I mean, most of most a lot of you know a, a huge part of New York City is a, in, a, in a. I actually live in a flood zone. Um, yeah, yeah, so, a lot of people live below the <laughs> sea level, literally. Yeah, so because we've become so you know populated and uh, all that, we live in a fast-paced world. Sometimes. Sometimes you just need to slow down and stop. Heddles Plus, the noon membership program of exclusive content, giveaways, discounts, and a community chat forum. Try a month free with the code Extra Blowout. I remember you uh, had a series of photos after Hurricane Sandy. That was a couple years after your experiences in um, Tohoku and Fukushima. I was wondering if you like saw any connection there and what the reaction was between the two of those. Yeah. So, so when, when Sandy happened, um, because I, I guess, because I felt, you know, I felt kind of, I definitely felt some connection. Like, well, this was, you know, this is like my, where I live. Um, and there were like weird similarities. Like there were these, you know, giant ships washed ashore and there were, cars strewn about so i mean vision you know there was definitely similarities and i felt um like you know i really wanted to document this thing that had happened where i live i was wondering if there was any specific like anecdotes or encounters that you had while in japan at these areas um that, that stuck with you or that has colored the way that you saw events like this in the future yeah, so I mean one of the one of one of the stories that I thought was really, you know, uh yeah, I mean, you know, really sad. I mean everything was sad. I mean the reality is everything was sad. But there was this one kind of hero of the tsunami, this 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 woman um Miki Endo and she worked her job was she was sort of worked at like at the disaster preparedness office and when the tsunami hit she stayed at her radio broadcasting you know to warn the people and and i have filled i have photos of the building that she worked in and she stayed at her you know people were fleeing and you know she stayed at her post and and you know broadcasting this warning and you know ended up dying um but uh 
just, you know, just like stuff like that, like just one individual person that just, you know, decided, you know, made the decision to try to save her community, you know? Um, but this, every, you know, every, every, everybody had a story like that. Like, like, like my friend Ken that, that helped me out, helped drive me around and, you know, helped me to jo join the, uh, the group was, you know, he went looking for, he went looking for, I think it was his parents. Um, he, he went to their house and, you know, couldn't find them. And then, you know, he, he's like, well, where, you know, where are they? And he kept looking and then I, he, he ended up finding their bodies like under a, you know, under a rug, um, you know, and, you know, hold on one second. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, just when you, when you hear people, you know, you just hear like, you, you know, you're hearing one person tell their little, their one story. Um, but, you know, Matt, you know, but then multiply that by 20,000, you know, so it, it's just, it's hard, it's hard to kind of comprehend. And, you know, we, so I think when Jack and I went back in the, in the summer in August, we went to his friend's restaurant and his friend, it was like a class, I think a former classmate and his restaurant was totally destroyed. His wife and his daughter, you know, drowned, they were dead and he survived by clinging to like a light pole, you know, like a, like a telephone pole, but like 40 feet, you know, 30 feet off the ground. But in his restaurant, when he rebuilt his restaurant, he painted a line around the wall. That's where the water level was. So you only knew that if he told you, but it was his way of like, you know, remembering, you know, what had happened. Um, and of course he had a, you know, he had a little shrine to his wife and his daughter, which is one of the photos I, you know, sent you. Um, yeah. just, you know, just stuff like, like that where, um, but, but, you know, it wasn't all tragedy. There was, there was a, we went, Jack and I went to a beach where there was still covered with these like containers, like 50 like shipping containers, shipping containers. But there was this one old man. And when I say old, he was probably like my age. Um, but this one guy, and it was his personal mission to like clean up that beach. So it was just like one guy with one basket and he'd walk out to the beach, pick up as much debris as he could, carry it up to the road, dump it, walk, you know, just, just every day. That's what the guy's mission was to clean up this one beach. So just, um, you know, but then there was then then you know as the situation improved and the roads improved then then you know just just a lot of you know japanese young japanese people started volunteering and they would just go, they would go to these communities that had been destroyed and um basically what they did was just shoveling mud off the roads and off the you know out of the houses um because you just imagine the debris and set sediment that was like you know, covering everywhere. So just, mm -hmm. you know, thousands and thousands of Japanese, you know, a lot, of, and a lot of them were girls. A lot of, a lot of the volunteers, I believe were girls, um, you know, just cleaning up, you know, cleaning up this area. Um, so, 
you know, as time progressed, I think it, it became, uh, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, it was a horrible thing, but I mean, the cool, you know, the amazing thing about Japanese people is that they really have a sense of their community and like, um, you know, like when you hear Americans bad mouthing socialism, you know, we, we could use a little more socialism, you know, I mean, when you think about, you know, like in Japan, um, you know, they had lines to go into the stores to buy water and like nobody cut zero people cut in line, you know, to, to buy water because they don't, you know, they don't do that. You know, they don't, mm-hmm. nobody cuts in line, nobody bribes, you know, their way to the front of the line. Um, you know, like with, with the vaccine thing now, you hear all these stories of, you know, privileged white people uh, in New York City, like, driving to like black and hispanic neighborhoods to get the vaccine um that they don't deserve to get and and you know lying lying on you know lying claiming to be teachers claiming to work at grocery stores when they don't they don't do that and um you know it's it's really you know selfish (laughs) Mm -hmm. so what you know what i really admire and respect about you know Japanese culture is that that's that that's way it, it probably happens but it's way less it's way less common and so I mean it was it was really uh um it, I guess part of what draws me to Japan is that you know sort of that that quality you know mm, that collective ideal the collective uh, you know it's really not that it's perfect but there's something about that that we can learn from you know yeah, that has been a big uh, thing in the back of my mind during all of COVID of uh, how conscientious that uh, a lot of other cultures are in comparison to what we have here and the way that it's affected us. And thinking about, you know, you mentioned that everyone has a story in terms of the 20,000 people that were killed in this disaster. And uh, yeah, it, it's when you hear a number like that, it's really difficult to quantify. Just like you mentioned, you know, a hundred and thirty foot tsunami. That like, you know, just to imagine something like sitting here that's one hundred and thirty feet tall is sort of difficult to conceptualize. And yeah. you know, you uh, try to square that with you know five hundred thousand people dead in the United States of COVID as of this recording. Uh, everyone has one of those stories, and. Uh, Hopefully it's a thing that will bring out the better part of us and realize that a lot of these uh, things that are baked into the way that we behave societally aren't the best uh, for us as a whole. But, you know, that that remains to be seen, as you said. Uh, I think we need a little bit more socialism, it's, uh, as I say often on this podcast. <laughs> well, what's, you know, what's funny about it, I don't mean to get off on this I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but what's funny about Americans, the, the, the Americans that, that, that badmouth socialism, I mean, you know, socialism is the real, the reason we have a national highway system, you know, mm-hmm. it's socialism's the reason we have a post office. Um, yeah. And can go know, to school and uh, we have, a, yeah, it's the, it's the reason your kid can go to school. Like you want to live without socialism, like, you know, Go yeah. be a pioneer on a mountain and, you know, shoot your rabbit for dinner and, you know. Mm-hmm. Drink contaminated water. <laughs> drink, con- yeah, drink, you know, you want to drink contaminated water. You know, what? And, and 
one more thing and I'll get off my tangent, but you know, at, in 1900, the, the life expectancy of an American man was like 50 years old. And by 2000, the life expectancy was like, you know, 70, 75, mm-hmm. let's say. And, you know, do you want to die when you're 50? I mean, I'd be like, I'd be like the oldest guy, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> The life expectancy is going down again, unfortunately, in this yeah, country. Got, it, it, yeah, it yeah. peaked at I think eighty-two, and now it's seventy-eight. And I think that that was even pre-COVID. Like, yeah, God only knows how uh, much that is going to adjust the the numbers that we have here of all the older people that are dying. Well, what a lot. Um, what a lot of people don't realize, you know, is United States has one of the highest infant mortality rates of the modern, you know, in the modern world. Like. The only countries that we compare it to are like, you know, Somalia and, you know, places like that for infant mortality. Like, yeah. you know. And it's primarily concentrated among disenfranchised groups. Like black yeah. mothers have an infant mortality rate that I think is at least four times higher than than white mothers. It's, there's a yeah. lot to reckon with in this country. But <laughs> Yeah. And I'm not, uh, you know, it's not like I'm some crazy liberal person either. You know, I my views are kind of spread across the spectrum. So it's not like I'm... Yeah you know, um, somebody that really, you know, drank the liberal Kool-Aid either, you know, (laughs) but we need to count on each other, you know, Mm -hmm. to survive. That's the whole point of having a country and having a city and having like a, you know, a, a, a society is to, you know, theoretically it's to survive and to thrive um, together, although together, be hard to um see that now in the the current state of the country but yeah um oh, what is it like in uh in that part of Japan now in Tohoku you mentioned that Fukushima is still uninhabitable but I, I a think lot of these I mean, other places back to normal I and mean, whatever I, normal could be at this so point. like the photo like the photo that I have of the giant ship which was sort of famous um not not my photo, but the the fact that this ship, this giant ship, was uh, in this case uh, the, the Numa. yeah. That and it was. It, I think locally they were even like debating, like, should we leave it there as like a monument? Um, but somebody, I think somebody actually bought that ship and removed it um, for as salvage. So I think that's gone and. Um, what was weird, you know, one of the first businesses that was rebuilt near that ship was a Seven Eleven convenience store. So i i I have a, I didn't send you the photo, but I have a photo of this like brand new Seven Eleven convenience store right next to the boat, <laughs> right next to the you know ghost ship. Um, but you know, but you know, Seven Eleven was providing a service to the community. They need, you know, they they needed. You know, it was a way to buy what you need to buy. So, I mean, it did, I think it did start to recover. And I think by now, I'm guessing by now it's uh, definitely on its way to being recovered. Um, I haven't, I haven't, I was hoping to, you know, I was hoping to, because this is the 10, 10 year anniversary. So I was really planning on going back like right now, but because of, because of our current situation, um, I, I couldn't do that, so I'll have to just try to go back. You know, once travel's easier. Uh, is your friend uh, Jack still over there in yeah, Sendai? Jack, Jack, 
lives in Sendai. I, he had, he had this pretty cool like biker bar at the time. So that was sort of like a base for a lot of the guys to hang out. Um, but I, I think that's closed and he's, you know, he's, he's moved on to something else. Um, and my, the, the, my friend Ken that, that sort of was like the main guy taking care of me. Um, he, he actually works at Harley Davidson in, in, uh, Japan. He's like the manager, I, I think of one of the, you know, local dealerships. Um, and, and the, the, the guy, uh, Mr. Narita that sort of organized the whole effort. Um, he's in a band. Um, I, and I think, I think they still, I think they kept up with some of this, you know, community service, um, even after things got better. So I think there's still, a lot of them are still doing, uh, you know, if not with tsunami survivors, with other, other, you know, other people that need aid. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Eric. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing the photos and your stories here. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, if people want to follow you or uh, know more about what you're up to, um, is Instagram the best place? It's yeah. Well, Instagram and I have I kind of a new website, um, which is you know, my name is pretty easy to Google. K V A T E K. It's it's not hard to find. So yeah, I have Instagram with my fancy new website. And the cool, the cool thing with my new website, I have a map of every place I've ever shot or worked, so you can see like kind of worldwide all the locations. It's kind of cool. Cool. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. All right. Well, thanks, Eric. Appreciate you taking the time. Just wanted to thank Eric again for coming on and sharing his experiences of all the time that he spent out there and. Tohoku and Fukushima for the uh, 10 years ago. It's hard to believe it's 10 years on now uh, still, but you can see the photos uh, that he took on our website. We've got a link in the description with a selection of some of his photos. And we're also going to be giving away uh, a print of one of those photos to a randomly selected Heddles Plus member. Uh, if you'd like to sign up for that, link is also in the description. And we're going to be donating 25% of all the revenue from Heddles Plus signups this week to UNICEF, which is one of the leading organizations for disaster and tsunami relief. Uh, so if you want to help them out and uh, support the show, uh, we'd love to have you. All right. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>